You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shanta Smith-Baker. In this special episode, recorded during the Portraits of Us book celebration, we join Shonda Smith-Baker in a dynamic conversation with influential leaders in philanthropy. Portraits of Us, a book of essays centering Black women leading philanthropy. Alongside Toya Nash-Randall, LaCora Bradford-Kesty, and Karen Kelly Arula, we delve into the vital intersections of racial equity, privilege, and community support. Discover how their voices are reshaping the landscape and driving change in the world of giving. Now let's tune in as our host, Shonda Smith-Baker, engages in a dialogue with Toya Nash-Randall, a distinguished figure in the world of philanthropy and the curator and catalyst of voice vision value. With over two decades of executive leadership in philanthropy, Toya is a loyal advocate for Black women's vital role in achieving equity and justice in the sector. So Toya, here we are in Minneapolis. Here we are. Recording conversations with Shonda, talking with you about voice, vision, value, black women leading in philanthropy. Yes. Recording this on Prince's birthday. Prince's birthday. The Mm. purple one. The purple one. There's something really majestic about the day and the moment. I'm a week out from leaving my role at the Minneapolis Foundation. And I don't know about for you, but for me, this is a full circle moment because um, like you have become my sister, but I met you the year I got to the Minneapolis Foundation. But more specifically, when you heard that I was coming to the Minneapolis Foundation, you said, I've got you. I'm going to sponsor you in to come to the APFI Black Women in Philanthropy Retreat. Yep. In Palm Beach, Florida, because it's important for you to be grounded with women across the country that are doing hard work. And do you remember when I said, is it really hard, though? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really? I mean, what's hard about philanthropy? I just came from running this organization. Now that's hard work. And then I get down there and y'all are doing breathing exercises and yoga. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking the whole time, do you remember how wide I was? I was? Yeah, 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 yeah. And was is it was is it Qigong we were doing on yeah. the like on the on the open lawn by the ocean? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around like what, what did I get this? myself yeah. into? Like how why are they so stressed and why is this so needed and what is it that I don't understand? So now I understand. Now you understand. <laughs> now I understand. And I imagine you overstand it. <laughs> <laughs> because you've been in philanthropy for how long? A, lo- a-, a long time. A couple decades now. Was that 20 years? Give or take. And so what have you learned that you would want to share? Yeah, I I would say what I've learned is, and you know, my grandmother used to say this, my grandma, my grandma Lily. um, She used to say you were born with everything you need. It's it's in you, right? Um, And... I would add to that, it's, it's in me and it's around me. And, and what's around me is a community of women who have shepherded me and helped shape me and support me in understanding how to navigate work that can be hard, but that everything doesn't have to be hard. I mean, this is a field where we have lots of privilege, access to you know, influence and an opportunity to make an impact um, in the midst of a lot of environments that can be harmful and individuals who don't always have our best interest at heart are the best interests of our communities. 
And so we are in these spaces, um, oftentimes pushing against those realities and feeling isolated and feeling as if all of it is up to us, right? And so 20 plus years later, understanding all of that to be the reality, I now understand that I have everything I need uh, within myself and around me. Women like you, the legacy of black women from this community. Um, I met Retha Clark King when I was in philanthropy for my second year and then met Wenda Weeks more probably around my fourth or fifth year. And then came into conversation and relationship with Karen Kelly Arula. Um, and then Jackie Copeland um, Bouvier. And then you and Trista, right? And Tanya Allen. Um, so when you talk about a full circle moment, us being here together, you know, there were women from this community who, who are giants. I didn't know they were giants at the time, but have come to appreciate and know the legacy and history of their contribution. And that's what I mean when I say, I have what I need around me and being able to tap in to that wisdom and that knowledge and those stories um, to inspire, to help keep me grounded, to help me understand that what I am navigating is not new. Those who came before me figured out a way, laid a roadmap. I need to tap into that. I need to understand that. And I need to understand what my role is in helping to move the needle for those in community with me and those coming up the line, right, with me and behind me. You both talk about the work being um, a place of privilege and there's a complexity of factors that work against who we are and what we bring to the table. Can you contextualize that? Which I think will, number one, affirm people that have the forces working against their brilliance. And then two, I think make it make it plain for folks that may not understand because the roles do have levels of privilege to them. Absolutely. So I, for, for me, I will just speak from my own experience. When I came into philanthropy, um, I worked for a small regional foundation that was at the very beginning of its formation. And I, having left a role as executive director of a nonprofit organization in my hometown of East St. Louis, came in the door as a grants manager to a small private foundation. And all I knew about philanthropy, going back to Minneapolis as a sort of place of, of connection for me, is there was a white man program officer named Dan Oh God, what was Dan's last name? He was a program officer at the McKnight Foundation. And Dan would come to East St. Louis because we were doing some work around water conservation and, and preservation around the Mississippi River. Um, and Dan would come to East St. Louis with his briefcase and his Blackberry and ask all kinds of probing questions and get folks all hot and bothered, you know, around his presence and what the possibility of his presence might mean, good or bad. And that was my connection to philanthropy. Um, Dan Ray was his name. So I then fast forward to coming to philanthropy as a program officer, um, but it's a new foundation. So I'm at the table with the executive director. It's her first time being an ED and a board of directors um, representing one of the wealthiest families in Illinois. And I had no clue of what I was in the midst of, right? But I was at the table in the ideation phase with them, in the sort of dreaming space with them about what this philanthropic organization could be, right? And spent 13 years learning about philanthropy at the table with those leaders and those high, I mean, high wealth individuals um, who made space for me. And at times it was very difficult as I was the longest um, tenured African-American on staff at that foundation. Um, and 
went from a grants manager to a program director and was being um, primed to be the successor to the founding executive director. But about 13 years, I now realized there's something else for me to do and it's, it's not here. I've done what I've come to do. Um, and so I had access and, and privilege in being in relationship with these folks. I learned a lot, but as the only African-American staff person in the beginning and the longest African-American staff person over the tenure of my 13 years, I experienced a lot of sort of moments where my ideas were questioned, um, where the efficacy of my leadership was challenged. Um, there were moments when there were experiences I wanted to have for my own development. And some of the feedback was, well, you've got to make a case for how this will benefit the foundation. Um, and so there were times when my development, my ideas, my leadership, my contribution was, was, was not valued and it was said to me very explicitly, right? Um, and it was during that time that I began to seek out community, um, the Association of Black Foundation Executives. APFI was a space that provided uh, soft landing and comfort and nurturing for me and sort of helped me recharge and recalibrate to go back into the work because I believed in the work and I believed in the community of people I was working in support of. Um, and so it's sort of existing in that and the duality of the privilege and the access and the complexity of how our contributions are undervalued or dismissed um, and then having space and place to go um, to, to, as I said, get recharged, get recalib recalibrated, get reaffirmed. Um, one, of, one of the themes that I've picked up on and, you know, as my network has grown across the country of women in philanthropy, that it has been that our expertise is often more recognized in our work in community than our contributions inside of the foundations that there's sort of this duality that yeah. like you are very good at was sort of speaking to communities that you are familiar with, but we got you in here, you know, your value was out there, not in here. And so I don't know if that's a theme that you have heard, but I know I certainly have heard that in, in different ways. And um, women are seeking ways to figure out how to navigate that. Yeah. And I, I, I don't disagree. And, you know, I would say that is one of the many reasons why I created Voice Vision Value, um, because there really is no space in philanthropy that sort of has a sustained narrative and sort of um, recognition of our contribution, mm -hmm. right? As a community of leaders, the largest um, BIPOC community of leaders in the field, when I say that to folks, they're like, really, is that true? I'm like, yeah, that's true. And, and you know, we have this Trailblazer Tuesday social media campaign where we give shouts out uh, to black women who have made history in various sort of ways um, over the course of their careers, where we honor those who have transitioned and are now with the ancestors. Um, and they're, it, it's often surprising to folks to read about our contributions. Um, it's often surprising to folks to know um, this history and some of these facts, right? Um, when I talk about, you know, Skillman Foundation for the past 22 years have had consecutive black women leaders. Um, and, and that is the only organization in the field that has had that to be its practice, right? Wow. Um, but it's not documented, it's not talked about. I think there's a lot we can learn from um, those institutional leaders, those board members who've been trustees over the past few decades, who've contributed to the nurturing and support of folks like Carol Goss and Tanya Allen and now Angelique Power. Um, but so, so yeah, there, there is 
the value that we hold and, and we are celebrated for in our community, but the field does not sort of hold space for us in that same way. And I'm hoping that voice vision value can begin to sort of push back against that, if not so much for the field, but for us to see yeah. one another and understand um, that so much of what the stories we've told ourselves and the stories that others have told us about ourselves, just they're just not true. The idea for voice vision value um, came during the pandemic after a book I was developing was put on hold because you're right, the world had to sort of focus on other things. Um, and a lot of time and energy had been spent in the fall of 2019, interviewing women, researching, you know, um, the literature and publications about Black women's leadership, not just in philanthropy, but writ large, to understand what a project like this um, could contribute. Um, and so I, I believe we had conducted between 75 to 80 plus interviews in the fall. We'd had a concept, we'd had some verbal commitments to finance the project, and then skirt, everything was put on hold. Um, around February, March of 2020. And um, I, I had many, many Black women advising me over the course of the research and development phase, one of them being a sister, uh, Tajma Beverly. She was the inaugural Deborah Holmes Fellow at the Women's Funding Network. And Tajma said to me, the, pro the book project may need to be put on hold, but you can't just stop. You've got to do something with everything you've heard, with everything you now know to be true. You've got to figure out what to do in the meantime to hold space for the energy and enthusiasm and the expectation that has been created. Um, and so the, the Spears group, um, who are the talented and brilliant creative force um, behind Voice Vision Value, um, they were the folks who had helped with the research and development. And so we sort of got to talking about what, well, what could we do in the meantime? And, and what could we do that would be digital, right? Because we couldn't leave the house. <laughs> so everything we were thinking through had to sort of live in this virtual space. Um, and so Voice Vision Value was born from those conversations at Tajma's urging and sort of as we sort of downloaded the themes and the key messages from all of those interviews, those words, voice, vision, value, just sort of resonated with me. Um, and so that's how, that's how VVV came to be. And so we launched a website um, and we started hosting uh, this, the web series where we began talking to black women via Zoom um, about their leadership experience and contribution and demonstration. And then, you know, the next crisis happened, which was the, the racial uprising. And I was hearing from Black women how the field of philanthropy was turning to them, their CEOs, their boards of trustees, their, their, their colleagues and peers and community asking what what should philanthropy do in this moment? So you've got this global pandemic that's disproportionately impacting black and brown communities um, and exacerbating already existing you know, health disparities. And then you have on top of that or adjacent to that or parallel to that, the racial uprising with the, the, the murder of um, Breonna Taylor and then George Floyd um, and the sort of sort of what that rose up in everybody, the sort of sleeping and weeping, silent grief and trauma that Black folk had been living with, and the world was paying attention in a different kind of way. And so we were sort of rising up while also having to hold space for the trauma and the sadness and the unknown factors of what tomorrow might bring. As, as folks were dying in record numbers from the pandemic. So the idea came to, to, to document how Black women were leading the field in that moment, COVID and the racial uprising. And then, 
you know, that led into the election and the sort of political uncertainty that came with that. And then the insurrection uh, in, in 2021. And so we partnered with Frontline Solutions and Dr. Jessica Barron as the lead researcher to just talk to a community of Black women leaders to just put pen to paper. What it, how are you leading the field? What are the strategies? Where have these strategies been born from? And what is your, what is your vision for the field going forward? And, and so the Centering Ourselves Research report series was born um, in, in 2020. We released the first report in 2021 committed to producing three reports, one every other year. So we're in the process of developing the second report, which will actually chronicle um, the history of Black women's leadership at Skillman Foundation. I referenced earlier, they've had three Black women CEOs in the past 20 plus years. So we're gonna sort of talk with those leaders, um, Tanya and Carol and Angelique, as well as board members, uh, present and past, um, to understand what does it take to support Black women's leadership? What commitments did the board make? Was it intentional or was it a more organic process? Um, and what are those lessons the field can learn? Because we have plenty of examples of institutions that hire consecutive white leaders, um, but not many who hire consecutive Black or people of color leaders. So that's the second report. Um, and then the book project was brought back online in 2022 when the world sort of opened up and things were safer for us to interact and engage. And we had lived through various iterations of, of COVID and Omicron and, and all of those things. And we launched it here in Minneapolis and in New Orleans in May of, of 2022. So to be back here in June to celebrate, reveal the book cover, sneak peek with the Twin Cities chapter, you know, to celebrate Shonda. Um, I would say it, it evolves and continues to evolve very organically, listening to women's questions and curiosities and requests for support um, is really what guides, that's what guides the work. And women saying yes, none of this could be possible if women don't say yes. <laughs> Continuing the conversation, Shonda turns her attention to another remarkable guest, LaCora Bradford-Kesty. LaCora is a Minneapolis native with over two decades of experience living, volunteering, working, and is deeply connected to the Twin Cities. She's a dedicated Northside community member, serving on boards and fostering collective impact. On a scale of one to 10, how dope are you? Oh, I'm mad dope. <laughs> 10 I'm off the scale <laughs> there's no scale that can hold there's no scale that can hold me I'm dope I'm dope why do you call me big boss I call you big boss oh that's a good question well because you're amazing and oh, why do I call you big boss I mean because that's how I first met you was the big boss <laughs> I met you as the big boss and I call you big boss because I feel like that's your personality. Like you lead with integrity. You lead as like you're not afraid to speak your mind, say what you have to say, you know, and call out what needs to be said, especially in places that aren't really advocating for black and brown people. So you're the big boss. I'm the big boss. So when I was at Pillsbury United Communities and I was a CEO, and nobody else would come in my office when I was working because I was working. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and? <laughs> you would just come in and plop down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you feel like you had permission to do that? Because you said your door is always open. <laughs> and I believed you. <laughs> and did I ever turn you down when you did that? No. You said, do you want to sit here? And then I said, yeah. And then I was like, I don't know if I really want to sit here in this spot. <laughs> so I think I sat in that nice chair that you had that had the little footstool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the one that Kamaria slept on. Yep. <laughs> so when, um, like, I'm thinking a lot about 
like the way in which I support leaders yeah. and the ways leaders need to be supported. Is there an intersection? Like if you had to give me advice, what would it be? If I would have to give you advice, I think the first thing that comes to mind is continue to bring folks along. I think throughout your journey of your career, you've always um, brought people along with you. You know, invite invitation to an event, you know, sending a link to apply to something, you know, um, village auntie, here's 10 bucks at the basketball game. Like, I don't know, like you've always been um, a person to see talent and or to open a door for someone. And so don't stop doing that because I think wherever you go, like there's space for everyone and you do that. So how long have you been in formal philanthropy? Three years. And One year with the feds. <laughs> One year with the feds and two years with the Women's Foundation. Um, the vice president of community impact. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that first part. Vice president of community impact is still new. I'm still getting used to it. Congratulations. Thank you. What has shocked you? About philanthropy? How we are all still so siloed. And we're not really all working together to really do some really great work. That still has shocked me. What do you love about it? The way that we are able to interact with community and touch community in a different way. I would say at least from my organization. Like I feel like my proximity to community, I still get to be close to them, um, even though I'm still a funder. What do you hope your legacy in that role will be? That I created more opportunities for more people to get funding. Like I left go of some of those barriers or the traditional ways of how we had to do funding and evaluation. You know, we are here talking with Toya Randall and her amazing vision on Voice Vision Value Black Women Leading in Philanthropy, which you are part of that community. Um, this is really a storytelling. It's, it's documenting the stories and, the, and like, there's, there's urban legend, right? There's like this oral history that is very rich in mm -hmm. tradition. But we are working to document. Do you think we are fully telling our stories? Like, what do you hope that we do to better tell our story? I think one thing, so I had the opportunity to sit down with Wenda Weeks. And she said to me, you know, we have to, she was like, Philanthropy, like we have to de demystify what all of this really means. And it, it can feel like an industry that's so, like no one really knows the ins and outs of what it is. And I feel like telling our story of like how we've had to navigate the systems that are, have been already in place and how we're trying to envision something new and different and what that struggle, that co-struggle looks like. I feel like that's some, some of the things that I want to be able to speak to or, or I, I think even like we were working with trying to figure out a DAF holder. Are they going to, are, the, are we going to really like take over what their grant making looks like? And I'm like, are they equipped to do something like that? Are they ready to, you know, go out and train and, and do this work? And it, I feel like people think it's just like so easy to cut and paste and, and to give funds, but it's really intentional on in how we hold it and the pieces that we have to navigate, because it's hard. Giving out money is hard. There's always somebody that's gonna say, you did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to talk about what that looks like, you know, talk about what, what, what is all of that? What is the, the struggles that we go through, the co-struggles? How do you know when you've made a difference? When a grantee calls me and says, hey, um, thank you, and I need this, and I can offer support, but that, that, the, that they're comfortable to be able to come to me in times of need and also feel celebrated in good times as well. Any parting words of inspiration? Keep being a big boss. Don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> Don't stop. Are you creating space for others to come along with you? Hell yeah. Are you playing it forward? <laughs> I am. I sure the hell am. All right. <laughs> Thank you.
Our journey through this insightful discussion brings us to Karen Kelly Arula, a prominent voice in philanthropy. Join Shonda and Karen as they discuss governance, accountability, and the role of foundations in fostering equity. Karen is currently the Chief Operating Officer at NAS, Northside Achievement Zone, a distinguished senior executive known for her exceptional achievements and commitment to equity. Oh, Karen Kelly, our mm, Yes. Where do we begin? I tell you this story every time I see you, and then I'm going to repeat it again because um, I grew up and I did not know, I was not raised in a house where we said words like philanthropy. But I was raised in a house where we did giving, right? We supported our church. We supported each other. We supported community. My mother was always at my school, right? My uncle led the school's, you know, system. Like we were a very engaged family broadly and still are in community. But we did not talk about it in these very tangible terms because it was who we were. It wasn't what we did. It was who we were. And so um, I went to church and, and we were um, church mates. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I would see you at church and I still sit in the back and you sit in the front with your family. <laughs> My husband makes me sit in the front. OK. <laughs> and I sit in the back and I just started coming into wanting to make more and more of a difference in the community. And, you know, when I first started observing you, I don't even know if I knew what your title was, but I knew you were a difference maker in community. And I knew that difference made a difference for me. And it has been such a footprint for me. And there are moments that you will never know that I've observed that have influenced me personally and professionally that I don't even know if I could say thank you enough. So thank you. You are a trailblazer. You broke ceilings in philanthropy. Did you know that you were doing that when you were doing it? Wow. Well, thank you for the kind words. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting because our, I would describe my family in a very similar way. Um, my mother was a social worker. She served on our local school board. Um, one of her favorite sayings was charity begins at home. So, you know, how you act in this house is, is um, you know, how you need to act when you go in the community. And um, we were always doing something that was about somebody else. You know, I joined philanthropy quite by accident. I moved from Chicago to Minneapolis, saw the job posted um, at the Minneapolis Foundation. And because I have been working with children and families in poverty, so to speak, in Chicago, that was how the job was framed. And so I was thrilled to be hired but I had never worked in philanthropy. I, you know, helped write grants and asked for money. And so actually, in a sense, from the very first day that I started, I knew that I was walking on a path that might be different. I actually, there were two people hired at the same time. An African-American man had left the foundation and people in the community were saying, oh, so you took um, his job. And I just remember having this feeling like, oh, so there's only one seat (laughs) for a black person. Um, And, you know, I was determined in my own mind, not knowing how what ended up being almost 20 years uh, would unfold to look for every opportunity to change that narrative. You know, part of the project that I've been um, very honored to be part of, Black Women, leading in philanthropy, voice, vision, value, under Toya Rander's uh, vision, has been really documenting and telling our stories. And as I've thought about it more, of course, you and Wenda and Rita and and others, right, come to mind. And as I've thought about that, there was also this recognition that we actually have less Black women leading in philanthropy than we did 10, 15 years ago. 
So what does that feel like? Like you were busting through ceilings and yet we have less people at the top in the top spots. Yeah. Um, I've thought about that a lot. And um, to be honest, it, it's really, it's hurtful on a really deep level. Um, you know, it's almost in the same way that our parents fought so hard to, um, you know, open so many doors, change systems. I think of all the marches I went to as a child, the protests, the... And, you know, I often say my parents and grandparents, particularly my grandparents, would be so disappointed if they knew that we're still in the situation we're in in this country after all that they, you know, put on the on the table. And, um, you know, when I came to philanthropy, my very first phone call was from uh, one of my mentors, Charlene Edwards, who was at the Bush Foundation. And um, she called me out of the blue and said, you know, welcome, and you're one of us. And it was Charlene Edwards. Um, there were about five or six black women at um, the Bush Foundation, General Mills, Northwest Area Foundation, McKnight. Um, we got together every single month for dinner. We celebrated each other. We cried together <laughs> at times. Um, and, you know, there's times when I just sit back and look today and I, I think, you know, we, we took several steps forward and it feels like we've taken several steps back. I ask myself, you know, what is that about? And sometimes I feel like um, kind of the saying, been there, done that, is, is relevant. It looks good when you, you know, are a foundation, especially in the midst of all that's happened in our country and our community, to say, yeah, I hired a Black person in philanthropy. But um, the question of do you really want us bringing our whole selves with all of our ideas, with bringing the community along, challenging the status quo. You know, when I think about some of the conversations I set through, some of the situations I endured, two times in particular that I literally thought I was gonna get fired because I just, I had to be who I was in the moment and you know, I do, I look back and I think, we did all of that. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, you know, there are um, women that I see. I mean, I remember when I saw the announcement of your joining philanthropy, like, I mean, I, I just didn't have any words for how excited, proud that I was. And I see young women that are in some spots that I just pray that they have the opportunity to, you know, grow and move up. And so it's, it's a very much a mixed bag for me, but I honestly expected so much more. What do you think needs to happen to create space for more of us to, to move up or to be brought in into those lead roles? Do you think it's governance? Do you think it's, do you think we need to take better care of ourselves? Like, is it fatigue and we, we move out? Like, is it impatience? Like, like anything, um, it's, it's multidimensional. Governance is, is certainly a significant factor. It's like, we need more of us on boards. Um, you know, when people ask me, you know, do you, do you ever want to get back in philanthropy? I always say, I want to be on a foundation board, <laughs> you know, because um, it's that vote, you know, it's that search committee, it's that um, who's going to be there for the long haul when new ideas are proposed, when um, different organizations are put on the table for funding. You need allies. And so, um, you know, I like to think that some of the work that some foundations are doing around, you know, becoming more culturally competent, you know. Um, I mean, all of that is good. 
But at the end of the day, it really comes down to leadership. And I think it's also, I mean, I love the, the collective that you've been a part of, of starting. And, um, you know, that's another way um, to create our own. But, you know, I've always been a big believer that, I mean, where the money is, you know, especially in community foundations, the first word is community. <laughs> you know, the whole structure of those foundations is really supposed to be about serving the needs of the whole community. And we have to, to be in a position to make that happen because so often if we're not there, it's not gonna happen. Or at least the conversation is never gonna be entertained. Um, so it's just so many, so many elements that go into it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been in a lot of conversations where, and especially in community, when they're like, no one's holding philanthropy accountable to what it says. Mm. Who holds philanthropy accountable? Mm -hmm. I mean, really the buck does stop at the, at the governance level, really. Yeah. I mean, and of course, people in community, well, not everybody, let's say, <laughs> feel like it's risky, you know, because you're trying to get money from a foundation. And so you don't want to be too critical. Um, but I actually love the people that picked up the phone, you know, that took me to task um, that you know, mostly, you know, in the line at Cub or, <laughs> you know, being out in community Sunday morning, you know, I didn't get this money or oh, yeah. what's going on. What's it going to take? Y'all got a problem with my organization. Right, I just right. had one of those calls this week. <laughs> yeah. One of my funniest things that happened when this is when my kids were little, um, I was driving and somebody, you know, caught my eye, rolled down the window and they're yelling, you know, I need $10,000 for whatever this thing was. And my son was sitting um, in the back seat, and I could just see his eyes were like huge. Like he's <laughs> thinking, you know, mom has all this money. So I had explained to him, okay, this is how it works. This is mommy does not have ten thousand dollars, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think um, I think in general, philanthropy is not accountable. Um, not in the way that you or I might define it, not in the way that community would define it. There's still a lot of work to be done there. For the project that uh, Toya is doing, I find it to be really exciting because of simply everyone doesn't have maybe a Karen Kelly sitting in the front aisles you know, of their church or they may not have someone within reach that has the role. You, if you can't see it, you can't, can't believe it. And I think the more we document our stories, the more we see the possibility in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you want to share about how you might be resonating with what Toya is doing? I have always been a believer that stories are powerful. You know, I've been in a lot of conversations lately just about narratives. The narratives that we believe ourselves as black women, what we believe about ourselves, um, and, and as a group, how we can come together to change those narratives. The women, the black women I know in philanthropy are some of the most amazing women that I know doing anything anywhere. And to lift up those stories, lessons learned, and, and also speak about the challenges um, as hard as it is, because I think any of us could tell stories that would shock, <laughs> um, you know, that the average, um, you talk about governance, board member, donor, um, just people in the community. So I think it's just so important to tell the story and to document it for, you know, the history book. Mm -hmm. um, because I have to believe that everything, all of the seeds that have been planted um, will bloom. And um, there are, you know, younger women coming behind us um, that we don't know are watching us um, who will be inspired to take that next step. 
And so I am just thrilled to see the work and, um, you know, really grateful to Toya and others for the vision. No pun intended. <laughs> um, because it, 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 it matters. Yeah. Even for this event, right, like trying to curate a list of black women in philanthropy. And I'm like, OK, we can have the event. I think I got to 30. Mm. Then I'm like, OK, well, I can do women of color in the event. I get mm. to a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I go, well, women who support women of color and black women in philanthropy. <laughs> you get yeah. to a little bit more. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there, there's becoming more of a critical mass and there's more than what there were. But those top roles and. It's one of those things where you can both be excited. I don't know. I just keep talking about joy and pain. And um, and I was at this, I actually moderated something earlier today for Echoing in Green. It's mm. part of their opening. They talked about what is power. Mm. And one of the fellows got up and they said, when people think about power and how we talk about privilege is that there's people born every day with all the resources they need. Mm-hmm. All the financial resources mm-hmm. they need. Mm-hmm. They can get up, they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's people that have no resources that are doing amazing things mm-hmm. for other people. Mm-hmm. How we define power and privilege needs to be rethought and recalibrated and owned differently by us. Mm-hmm. And we need the resources to go with the people that are willing to do more for others. And we have to think about how we use philanthropy and our financial structures to power difference making. Mm -hmm. And as he was saying it, I could just feel myself sort of tearing up, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're working in these complexities and things that shake your own sensibilities. Um, And you're working in the middle of some of the most brilliant things you'll ever see that you don't have enough money to support. Right. And right. you can see the you can see the lights light up and you can feel the frustrations. You know, there's a level of complexity to philanthropy that from outside you would never know. Right. Right. And I think that has been the biggest lesson for me because, you, you know, I remember my husband when he first came in, I was like, oh, my God, babe, I'm so tired. And I remember was driving. We, I don't remember we were on a road trip. And he's like, really, Shonda, you're giving away money. There's nothing hard about that. I think I didn't talk to him the rest of the, the four hours. I'm like, I was trying to think about what I was going to say that wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't mean. Because I'm like, really? And I couldn't even find the words. But it really is a, it's, it's a very complicated sector. And I, I expect more from it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to push for more. Yeah, yeah. And, and you should. It's funny, I, I felt like after I had been at the foundation for 18 years and had, um, you know, a going away celebration, I kind of joke with my husband, you know, like, now do you understand what I do? <laughs> um, because it, it is so complex and it, it isn't, it, it can appear easy, but um, it isn't. And nor should, I think, I mean, it should be more simple um, in the sense of access from the community and the community being able to understand processes and systems for like, how do we get the resources to do what we need to do without jumping through 10 million hoops? Um, On the other hand, there is a level of, I guess I think more complex understanding about what's really happening in the community and um, not thinking that all of the solutions are just that simple. Um, and, you know, particularly not wanting to invest in the long term for things that, you know, took us 400 year, plus years to get here. If I wasn't having such a good day, I'd talk to you about impact and evaluation. Because <laughs> that one right there, I'll tell you what, to that point, right, is that people want investment and they want change in six months. And it's so much more nuanced. And maybe I will talk about it because I've said that on the financial side, you would understand it. You understand market variability, right? You understand when inflation and you understand the financial market. And so you expect the returns not to be the same. Mm-hmm. But on the community side, it's almost like the more the more variability, the more disruption, the quicker you want 
the, the, the ROI. And right. it actually just doesn't work that way because trust has been interrupted. Right. And so you've got to come back in and you have to have some patience. Right. You have to rebuild. You have to you have to send. You have to sit in it. And it actually takes it. There's not that much difference mm-hmm. um, there. At least at least it's comparatives that can be drawn from it. And so over here, we understand. Just be patient. Right. There's there's barren bull markets. Right. And if you just wait over time, it will turn out. But on the community side, we don't get it. Right. Right. And and we need to learn how to understand that differently. Yeah. I mean, that's the world I live in every day now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, being on the ground, um, working in North Minneapolis, um, you know, with a very big mission to end generational poverty and create a culture of achievement. You know, there's there's so many places where someone might say, you know, we're not we're not winning. Um, Where's the impact? We put all this money in. And yet without the acknowledgement of everything that you said, but also the broken systems, the you know, the context in which we operate. I mean, how are our kids supposed to learn when, you know, they have to walk? past memorials of community members that have died in gun violence right. and that that's at their bus stop because you know all of the factors and I often have these conversations with with board members and donors these are not excuses no these are realities these this is the reality and the context in which we have to work to create change And, you know, I've lived in the community for 28 years. I raised two children there, my husband and I. Um, You know, we work, worship, play, um, everything in the community. It means everything to me to create the change. Um, But it isn't going to happen overnight. And um, leadership, true leadership, understands that. And I think that's what's missing. That's a mic drop right there. (laughs) Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing where you're off to next. We'll always be your cheerleader. Thank you. To explore more insightful conversations and stay updated on Shonda Smith-Baker's work, visit our new website at smithbaker.co. That's smithbaker.co.